over the last 30 years, our workforce has become sicker and sicker. And the illnesses that they're dealing with are invisible. Now, whether it's mental illness, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, you know, a lot of people find it hard to believe that 60% of the workforce in Ontario struggles with at least one chronic illness. From Six Story, I'm your producer, Diana Hong, and you're listening to Rev Up Your Potential with Hilda Gann. The show will be talk with the entrepreneur next door about the stories behind their success and the lessons they've learned along the way. Today's guest is the founder and CEO of Ringside MD, a company that provides on-site health care for corporations. He is also the medical officer of health from the Nova Scotia Health Authority. In today's episode, he and Hilda will discuss breaking social economic barriers in his youth, his vision to make healthcare accessible to everyone in the workplace, COVID concerns for businesses working through the pandemic, and so much more. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Alkesh Patel. But I grew up in a low-income neighborhood in Toronto. And, you know, generally, when people would look to our neighborhood or even our family, uh, they would look, look at someone uh, who comes from a place like this to say, you really can't achieve much, or would, they wouldn't expect you to become a physician or a professional. Those types of environments, I think, sometimes foster a type of resilience and a commitment to, to excellence that does result in people who can succeed and overcome you know, such austere conditions. You know, and when I say austere, not necessarily like the, the winter Arctic or anything, but you know, when you don't have money in a developed nation or when, you, when you're limited in how much money you have, it does really limit the kind of opportunities that you can access, even how you can succeed. Yeah. What made you decide to become a physician? You know, I mean, you're talking about being young and in an area where it was going to be hard probably to find that kind of money to do that. When did you decide you wanted to become and how did that journey evolve? The journey started with me not wanting to be a doctor. Uh, I thought I was going to be an accountant or a businessman. As I got older and in high school, I thought I was going to be an engineer. I love tinkering with electronics and TVs and video cassette recorders and building computers from scratch. But it was a co-op experience with the Toronto paramedics that solidified my passion for healthcare. And it made me realize that I could do a lot more good for a greater number of people if I pursued a career in healthcare. Even after I made that decision, wanting to be a doctor wasn't always in the cards or always on the table. And there were different challenges along the way that either changed my mind uh, about a career in medicine or, again, helped me eventually mature into it and realize that this is actually the right path for me. Um, but that's essentially my path to sort of, you know, how I came to, to be a physician. Definitely not a hey, I want to be a doctor and playing doctor. And it wasn't a linear path. Let's just say that. <laughs> I can hear that accounting and engineering and IT and physician. I think it explains some of the things that you're currently doing today because you're an epidemiologist and with the medical office of health. That kind of relates to the numbers and the statistics and I appreciate the, the feeling of doing good. Can you share a little bit more about how you ended up being a family physician and involved in public health? So when I uh, started my residency training after medical school, I, I was accepted to a program in, uh, called Public Health and Preventive Medicine. Uh, and I trained in Hamilton at McMaster University. 
And that training program uh, prepared me for a leadership role in public health, where I would be able to lead a health department and the priorities to protect the community that we would be serving. And that occurs at a regional level, at a provincial level, and at a federal level. And as we're learning through this pandemic, public health is intimately involved in, in a lot of planning and decision making, as well as directing how things are going to be executed. But I think what drew me to this path and, and this profession was what I've always uh, done growing up is I recognize that I never was just satisfied with looking at the job or the role that I was doing. I always would look at the bigger system and how things fit together and how things affect different individuals, whether it's clients, patients, users, people who work in the system. But I began to recognize that medicine for me was more than just trying to help individuals feel better and be healthy. Uh, I wanted to work within the system to improve the health of entire communities that were out there. That's my vision. I think I grew up in a neighborhood recognizing that this neighborhood could be helped and not be considered a lost cause, so to speak. And I continue with that vision for all of Canada, for that matter, and even globally, for that matter, is that I see situations or problems and I don't see them as a hopeless cause. I see them as an opportunity to improve, an opportunity to be better, to deliver a different way of helping people to be at their best. When you were growing up, did you feel that you would become something more than what your neighborhood might have confined you to? I think you kind of alluded to that in the beginning. And I, I want the listeners to understand that because some of them may never have experienced that and some others have or are in that situation where I want to make something, but I'm not sure because I feel where I grew up is limiting how I can evolve. Most definitely. I mean, my earliest experience of failure was in grade one. I, along with a number of kids in my neighborhood, were all held back. And that sets the stage for future years of school where you're always remembered as the kids who failed the grade before. And that ultimately it sets people up for a mindset of, hey, you can't succeed. And if you're six years old, seven years old, and you experience a failure or a loss that's that significant and that stigmatizes who you are as an individual, that carries with you. And it's really tough to break that stigma. And it takes people around you to who believe in you, who believe differently to allow you to break out of that mold that people have set for you. So Akesh, you talked about in grade one, how you had to repeat and the feelings surrounding that. How did you break out of that feeling? You talked about somebody believing in you. Is that a key to that particular time? Most definitely. We talk about believing in yourself and it's as if this magical light switch turns on. And if you believe in yourself, things will happen. I think most people who know me know that I'm very optimistic by nature uh, but pragmatic. And, and so sometimes that comes off as pessimism, but it's more pragmatism in the context of, of eternal optimism, where I believe that we can be better. But while I always believed in myself, unlocking the additional potential that I had within myself happened when other people started believing in me. And instead of thinking that I wasn't capable of greatness, started believing that, hey, you've got something different to offer. And that started with my grade seven English teacher who thought that I was capable of reading an advanced class, you know, English book. It then progressed to a high school teacher who was my communications technology uh, teacher, but became a mentor who guided me to move away from home and pursue my passion for healthcare. You know, it wasn't necessarily one person. It was a number of people. It was my family. It was my friends. It was my community. These people during the times of darkness, times of failure, times of loss are the people that reinforced that it was possible for me to do more than the status quo, more than just what I was surrounded by, whether it was lack of access or opportunity. For me, it was motivation to create access, to create opportunity. 
I know you to be that positive, pragmatic person. I, you know, applaud the success that you had to overcome that kind of stigma that happened so early and for, for sharing that. I know that you had another incident in your life that you were able to turn around. Are you comfortable sharing that with us? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, yeah. Today we're an open book. <laughs> so when I graduated from medical school, this was supposed to be the most joyous time. And right before graduating, I'd gone through 13 interviews across Canada in a number of different specialties that I was interested in. But I really wanted to be a pediatrician at the time. And I thought I was a shoe in My background with a master's in epidemiology, you know, my interest in early childhood maltreatment, having done work in, in different areas in healthcare, uh, I thought I would get the job. And, you know, on the day that I was supposed to receive my acceptance letter, I received a rejection letter saying you didn't match anywhere. And it was the most devastating experience. And it was the hardest place to be at a time when I'm supposed to be happy, not, you know, without a job, basically. I felt like I'd let my family down. I felt like I'd let myself down. I felt the shame of not succeeding. And at that time, I needed to find the strength to believe in myself so that I could move forward and go beyond just the rejection. And I reached out to a good confidant and and a friend of mine who said, you've been looking in all the wrong places. You see this job in public health? That's what you were meant to do. You need to apply and do that. It was a million in one shot. I pulled out all the stops. I called the secretary for the residency program and I said, listen, stop interviewing whoever you're interviewing for this job. Tell the program director, I'm the guy. My resume, my experience, my skill set, what I want to do with my career, this is what I was meant to do. That led to an interview process uh, three days later. And an hour after the interview, I got the acceptance offer. Wow. 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 And yep, all I can tell you is I cried. (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, and it was tears of joy. And I, to this day, yeah. I still cry tears of joy because it was definitely a turning point in my life. The question is, what would I have done if I didn't get the job? Well, I knew that I wasn't going to just stop there and that I had to continue on. And there was always going to be a path forward. But I think that happened because, again, people believing in me and me willing to challenge the deal breakers that I had. You know, I always thought, hey, this is what I want. But sometimes you have to challenge what you think you want or what you think you need even. Yeah. What was it about that job? What was it igniting this passion inside you to say, this is the job. I need this job. I'm fitted for this job. It goes back to why I entered into medicine. I fundamentally believe that I could help people one-on-one. I, to this day, believe that. It's how I succeeded in my career, in my life. People help me one-on-one. And I continue to pay that forward in my career where I help patients one-on-one. But I also knew that I would never be satisfied with just helping individuals. And I could see the systemic problems. I could see the issues that were affecting communities and different groups of people. When I saw the job description, I said, this is me. It's not just about one person. It's about everyone. And it's about the community we live in. And so that is really what drew my attention to it. And the other thing is public health wasn't called public health back then. It was actually called community medicine. And that's what really drew me to this was the idea of being able to not just help individuals, but it's about helping more than just one person. It's about helping everyone. We've had some conversations in the past. You've shared with me this concept for medicine, and you have this company called Ringside MD. I have a healthcare background. I started my career as a nurse, and you know that, but I'm sharing that with the audience. So when you shared with me your model, the light bulb went on for me. Like I thought, wow, this is a physician. He's a business person. He understands what people need. And I think this is where that epidemiology, that wanting to be an accountant, that wanting to be an IT engineer, 
all of that inside you was coming through. Can you share this model that you have? Because I really think it is something that is a breath of fresh air and much needed in our healthcare system. As you know, Hilda, I've been working since I was 13 years old. I've worked in different industries. One of the biggest joys of working for me was meeting new people and working with people. And what I can say, and I know this uh, through my own family experience and through the experience of my patients, is that the quality of healthcare over the last 30 years in Canada has declined. Our relationship and access to primary care has become more of a drive-through experience and a convenience store experience rather than a holistic experience that patients and healthcare providers are looking to deliver and and receive. What I see now and, and what I've come to recognize over the last 30 years is that our workforce has become sicker and sicker and the illnesses that they're dealing with are invisible. You know, whether it's mental illness, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, all kinds of muscle pains and headaches and neurological symptoms. You know, a lot of people find it hard to believe that 60% of the workforce in Ontario struggles with at least one chronic illness. And as you get older and past the age of 40, it turns into two and three. In Individuals who are between the ages of 18 and 34, 30% of them experience at least one chronic medical illness. And what we're seeing is we're diagnosing chronic illnesses like diabetes and blood pressure and earlier and earlier. We're seeing teenagers with this and young adults. You know, once upon a time, a hundred years ago, Henry Ford and a whole bunch of other entrepreneurs brought the doctor to the workplace because of a lot of the industrial accidents and injuries and illnesses that employees would face. And through the 60s and 70s, we eventually phased that model out because we became more of a sedentary workforce and less of a physical workforce and safety in the work environment began to increase. But through the 80s, 90s, and the, and the 2000s, unfortunately, that sedentary work has actually resulted in an epidemic of chronic disease. And we're not doing a good job of managing it. What we're seeing in the workplace is rising group health insurance costs. Year after year, group health insurance costs are going up. It's because our employees are taking more prescription medications. The cost of medications is going up. We no longer have new generic drugs to offset the cost of pricey brand name drugs. And we're heading into an era where, especially with this pandemic, access to primary care is only going to get worse. And while telemedicine has definitely filled a void during this pandemic, the need for in-person care has not been lost. Patients need to see their doctors more than ever before. So the vision for Ringside MD that I envisioned was, why don't we have the doctor's office in the workplace? Why can't employees see their family doctor and access healthcare and meet someone that knows them on a regular basis in a place that they spend a lot of time? You know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, we're in a pandemic now. A lot of people are working from home. I can tell you that there are a number of sectors where a large portion of people continue to go into work every single day and have to face customers and clients. Whether you look at the healthcare industry, police force, whether you look at the service industry, industry. There are people continually at work and we're facing not just a pandemic of COVID-19, but we're facing an epidemic of chronic diseases. And if we're going to effectively get people back to work and keep them healthy, I think you know, what, what Ringside envisioned three, four years ago to bring to Ontario is, is ripe and ready for now, which is to, to bring the doctor to the workplace, to integrate with the, with the workforce, and to be able to help them develop uh, a comprehensive primary care plan. And that's what primary care is about. It's about being comprehensive. It's not about driving through Tim Hortons and asking for a cup of coffee, getting a prescription for an antibiotic or a cream for a rash. It's about talking about chronic diseases. It's about talking about your family history of illness, your mom who's got heart disease, your dad who's had cancer or your grandparents. These are important conversations that can't be had in an episodic level. And this is where bringing the doctor to the workplace fundamentally, I believe, will change that experience. But ultimately, it'll change the company's bottom line. It'll actually help them save money. 
Employees will be at work more often, health and will be more present. They won't be checked, clocked in, but checked out, which happens often. And you'll also see a reduction in the group health insurance costs because you can actually guide prescription misuse when you have an on-site clinic. What I find interesting is that some physicians, you make a doctor's appointment, but you're allowed one, like one ailment to talk about. You can't say, I have these three things, which would help you with the puzzle, that these three things actually mean this disease versus this one thing. It could be these five, so I'm going to prescribe this for you, right? And it speaks to our system that we have, right? Yeah. We, we have yeah. a lot of doctors who'd like to address one issue at a time. Unfortunately, people also don't see their life as one issue at a time, or their time management doesn't allow them for multiple doctor's appointments. There's definitely a better way to deliver primary care, and this isn't a new model. This is something that's existed for over 100 years And right now, it's a growing model in the U.S. And for Canada, it's actually a very cost-effective model for employers because we're not looking for employers to hire a doctor on their payroll. If anything, we actually integrate with the publicly funded system. And that's the key difference with Ringside is we're not bringing you a private concierge service. We're actually bringing you a primary care team that's integrated with the public system, helps you get your referrals done, helps you get you connected to the specialist, helps you integrate all the imaging and blood work and all the results, and and helps you maintain a more complete picture than the one that they keep at a walk-in clinic or at a telemedicine service. And I know that's something you would love to be able to do for corporations and have it in their office building, which could have other companies in that building. So there's benefits. You actually do that in your own family practice unit. Is that not correct? That's correct. Yeah. So we have a ringside MD clinic in Burlington, North Burlington, Ontario. We're actually situated on the main level of a condo building and a community of four or 5,000 residents that feed in towards our clinic. And we've been there for about a year and a half and we've been doing very well. We're quite busy. Uh, so busy that I have to continue to look for new doctors to take on more patients. But it's the traditional family medicine model that we have there where we try to op- offer, where we do offer a comprehensive suite of services for our community. But again, that serves the North Burlington community. What my vision is to do is to actually develop a model that serves an organization. It's misunderstood the value of having a doctor in the workplace. When you understand the environment that a person lives in, works in, exists in, you're better able to offer a more personalized healthcare solution for them rather than just uh, what you get through a telemedicine conversation. Let's talk about COVID a little bit before um, we finish up. You're the Medical Officer of Health in Nova Scotia, and much of what's going on there will be similar to what's going on in provinces across Canada. What can you share with us? It, It is a difficult time. You know, they predict that depression will be the number two cause for illness in 2020, and that's thanks to COVID. So much anxiety, so much stress for all of us, and so much need to cope. What would you like to share with the people that listen to our podcast here? I share the concern that exists in our community right now. There's a lot going on, and and there's always this feeling like there isn't enough information uh, being given to us. And we're dealing with an invisible threat right now. So so anxiety and fear is definitely there. And what I can share with, with your listeners is, unfortunately, there will be a second wave. In my expert and professional opinion, it's inevitable. And the question will be, how big will it be? And how significant will the economic impact be? to you know, our, our community. I can tell you that we've already had a significant impact after the first wave. I know that a number of different government relief programs helped a, a lot of families out. 
but I think that we're going to need more help in the long term. The other sort of key piece that I want listeners to know is that we're still really early on in the pandemic. I know it feels like forever since this all began in March or January, but we have many more months to go. So we will need to pull together at every level, at the community level, at an organizational level, at the government level to support Canadians. It reminds me of the challenging times I went through as a child. I I reflect on a lot of those times now where I don't know how people in that situation are currently doing it, but all I can tell you is that they will continue to need our support. And, And there will be more job losses, unfortunately, and we'll need to continue to support our colleagues and our workforce through this next wave. And I guess the, the other big piece to this that I want to share with your listeners is the stigma of having COVID-19 is significant. You know, I regularly manage individuals who are positive for COVID-19. We're managing these outbreaks in homes. We're managing these in community centers, different facilities, workplaces, and it creates a lot of anxiety. And people think that a positive test is a positive test or, you know, it all starts with a rumor that, hey, we think that person has COVID. You really, really have to let the public health officials do their job and not allow rumor or fear drive decision-making at this time. I've I've seen it affect families. I've seen it affect uh, organizations where they pull the trigger too quickly. It costs people a lot of money uh, and it causes a lot of mental anguish. And so, you know, my advice is this is a virus that's spreading through our community. There isn't anybody to blame. You know, we're all doing our best. It's important to stay kind through this process and not to stigmatize or ostracize people who have this infection. Yeah. So what would you recommend if somebody found out that a person at work had COVID? What would a prudent employer need to do once they discovered that? Well, a prudent employer at this time should have a plan in place in terms of what they're going to do if there is a positive case. You know, often if there's a positive case in the workplace environment, public health will be in touch to talk about any exposure risk, should there be one. There are times where people who uh, you work with are positive for COVID-19, but were never near work or were at work at the time when they were infectious. And so that's the piece that, you know, the employers will need the guidance of public health or even the, the person who's, who says they've got COVID, you need more information. And this becomes tricky human resources and legal territory in terms of what you can and can't disclose. But this is why a lot of organizations during this time need professional expertise, both the medical sciences, they need expertise from the human resources side, and as well the legal side to be able to develop an effective response on how to handle a positive case. You know, again, for a lot of organizations, budget's an issue. They don't have the money or capital to invest in this, and and they will learn as we go along, unfortunately. But my guidance is if you can ask for help, reach out for help. Right. And I think your good point is about having a business continuity plan. Yeah, Yeah. it's a tough thing. When you say a second wave, do you think that people will be brought back into the isolation and emergency measures again? Or do you think provinces are going to just, and Canada's just going to let this ride out and see what happens? In terms of will there be additional closures or what kind of public health uh, guidance and measures will be implemented? That'll come at the time because an absolute rise in cases doesn't necessarily mean things are out of control. And it always is a function of how we as a health system can respond to the number of cases. So when we first started this pandemic, our capacity to handle a large volume of cases was much lower, but we've had some time to prepare now. And so we've increased that capacity. And so even if we reach the same numbers that we reached in the first wave, we 
may be better suited to handle those cases and we might be able to handle more than what we did in the first wave. So in terms of what will the restrictions be, I think there will be restrictions. What will they look like will depend on what the data shows us in terms of where it's spreading and and who's being affected. But the disruption that workplaces can continue to experience is that there will be other illnesses that their employees will get sick with during this holiday season that will have runny nose or a cough or And not everything is COVID-19, but it's going to affect their return to work policy on, well, can you still come to work with a sniffle or what does that look like? And how do we get you back to work? How do we deal with that chronic cough? Again, I see people in my clinic who have had chronic coughs for years. They're all showing up now because they're like, well, I can't go to work with this chronic cough. What do I do about it? And sometimes there isn't a solution. These people will continue to have to show up to work, but they're not infectious. So these are a lot of these considerations that, that employers are going to face, but they, they really have to reevaluate their sick policy, right? Their employee sick policy during this, especially during cold and flu season. And, and again, it's tough for a lot of companies out there. It's going to require an accepting some days of closing your business down. I've done that as a physician where if one of my staff members is sick, I'll, I'll have to close my clinic because I'm Unfortunately, I don't have a temp agency to pull from, especially during a pandemic. It's tough for people. And I think we need to realize that people are going under a lot of stress right now and to help and balance that. Where are you now in terms of your career and any anything you want to share? What's happening with you in your life? Well, I think where I'm at in my career right now is, you know, I'm definitely working to my full stability six to seven days a week. For the last, uh, since the pandemic began. And the way I'm approaching this pandemic right now is I am taking things one day at a time. It's really hard to plan during a time of uncertainty. We had grand plans for 2020 and that's changed for a lot of us. And so some of that requires us to pause. And that's one of the things that I'm doing right now is by working, I'm actually pausing on some of the future plans that I had. I had big visions, but I put some of those on hold right now and acknowledging that there will be a time for me to start up again, uh, certain initiatives that we've set our sights on. My advice and my vision is this optimism. This is all a phase. This will end. Our pandemic, we will pass through this pandemic and we will come out on the other side and there will be a period of recovery and rebuilding. And we will do that together. I will do that as a family doctor in the front lines, but I also want to continue doing that from the ringside MD model where I want to continue to push the vision that family doctors don't belong just in the community. They also belong in the workplace. And back in 1978, the World Health Organization said, you know, primary care should be delivered as close as possible to where people live and work. And while we are you know, situated in a community where our clinic is in a community, we're not actually where people live. And telemedicine is breaking down that barrier, but we're still not there yet. We have too many walls up around our clinics, too many barriers to seeing a family doctor, to accessing care beyond one issue per visit. And I feel like to take those walls down, we need to be situated where people work because that's where we spend a lot of our time, a lot of our day working and and being at work. Unless you're a completely virtual company, uh, which isn't the reality for a lot of companies, you will continue to operate a physical space and it will be necessary from your janitor to CEO to be in that space. And again, having a doctor on site will be invaluable in the future. And I think that's one way to empower our workforce and give them the confidence they need to move through this pandemic and beyond and empower them to be healthy. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Akesh, for sharing your journey from a person who grew up in a neighborhood where you turned that into something positive because of your positive outlook, because of the people who believed in you that gave you the belief in yourself and those mentors that guided you along the way. 
You know, I, I think the epiphany for me was when you said, you know, I try to become a pediatrician and because I thought that was what I wanted. And when I had to face that that wasn't going to happen, I found out the job that really was meant to be for me. And you've played a pivotal role in helping communities and understanding healthcare and moving that. So I really appreciate you sharing your journey and your experiences and the successes and the obstacles along the way. So thank you for coming on our show today. Thank you, Hilda. And it was a pleasure being here. And I hope to uh, see you on the other side, uh, you know. <laughs> you mean the other side of COVID? <laughs> the other side of COVID, exactly. <laughs> yes, I know. We, we need to have a coffee again <laughs> after exactly. this. Okay, thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening and rev up your potential in whatever way you can, because it will make a difference. And COVID-19 is a tough time. So take care and stay safe, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us in this episode. If you're new to Rev Up Your Potential, please visit our website at www.revupyourpotential.ca. There you will find more podcast episodes, videos, and a growing collection of resources to help you rev up your potential. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.